All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories number 54 for September 2023. Hey, I know that song. Songwriters and Interpreters at Laurel Hill. is a National Historic Landmark, an Arboretum, a Sculpture Garden, a Nature Preserve, and an Active Cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for tens of thousands of visitors every year. Its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill West, located across the Schuylkill River in Ballack-Kenwood, Pennsylvania, was founded in 1869. It has a history and a population of its own. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia, volunteer tour guide at Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West, and volunteer podcaster. The music scene in Philadelphia has always been strong. In prior podcasts, I told you about singers Teddy Pendergrass and Billy Paul, saxophonist Grover Washington Jr., disc jockeys High Lit and Jocko Henderson, and organist Larry Ferrari, plus opera singers David Bispam, Giuseppe Del Puente, and Nellie Mayo Elverson, and cabaret Broadway singer Anne Francine. For episode number 54 of All Bones Considered, you will hear about Septimus Winner, the composer of several earworms you sang as a child or with your children. William Kirkpatrick, a hymn writer, whose Christmas carol you've been singing all your life. Brenda Payton, lead singer for the R&B group Brenda and the Tabulations. And Phoebe Blessington, an up-and-coming singer-songwriter who was killed in an auto accident shortly after her 30th birthday. I'm going to add singer-songwriter and A&R man Richie Barrett, whose final services in cremation were at Laurel Hill West, although he is not buried here. And yes, I will play you plenty of samples of their works. Settle back for a musical education from all bones considered Laurel Hill stories. Hey, I know that song. Pseudonyms, pen names, noms de plume. They're used by creative people for different reasons. It might be a simple matter of making a name more interesting. Samuel Langhorne Clemens became Mark Twain. Maybe publishers are afraid of flooding the market. Stephen King published four novels as Richard Bachman, 
because his publisher was afraid that people would not buy more than one novel per year by the same author. Female authors sometimes use a male name so they would not be stereotyped. Marianne Evans wrote under the pen name George Eliot. Amandina Roar Lucille Dupin, Baron Dudevant, used the pseudonym George Sands. Karen Blixen's Out of Africa was published under the pen name Isak Denison. Even J.K. Rowling, of Harry Potter fame, adopts a male name, Robert Galbraith, when she's writing her crime fiction novels, Cormoran Strike. Now, what about a man using a woman's name? Many of Benjamin Franklin's writings were under female pseudonyms of Martha Careful, Polly Baker, Alice at her tongue, and of course, silence do good. Sometimes publishing houses use ghostwriters from various series. Nancy Drew mystery books are published as though they were all written by Carolyn Keene. The Hardy Boys books are published as the work of Franklin W. Dixon. The Bobsy Twins series are created to Laura Lee Hope. But numerous authors, male and female, were involved in each series. When it comes to music, Many female composers publish their works using only their initials or a male pseudonym. Fanny Mendelssohn sometimes used her younger brother Felix's name when she published her compositions. Belgian pianist Marianne Schippers van Damelen used the name Mitscapus. French-Irish composer Augusta Holmes used the name Hermann Zenta. But what of a male composer who published his most popular songs under the female pseudonym of Alice Hawthorne. He even had a lithograph portrait made to show what Alice looked like on the cover of the sheet music. Among the songs by Alice Hawthorne are The Earworms, Listen to the Mockingbird, Ten Little Indians, Where Oh Where Has My Little Dog Gone, and the insanely catchy The Alphabet Song. The name Alice Hawthorne was purportedly in honor of his mother, whose maiden name was Mary Ann Hawthorne, a distant relative of Nathaniel Hawthorne. The composer was Septimus Winner, born in Northern Liberties in 1827. Despite what Wikipedia says, he was not the seventh child born to violin maker Joseph Winner and Mary Ann. He was the firstborn. But he was named after his uncle Septimus, who was the seventh born. He signed his name Sep, S-E-P, period, and that is what everyone called him. The Winter family arrived in the colonies around 1700. Sep's great-great-great-grandfather, John Winter, was a privateer and a captain of the Wasp. He settled in New Jersey and died in 1725. John's son James moved to Bucks County, Pennsylvania in the 1740s and became a farmer. In 1756, he was a member of the Pennsylvania Infantry. Sepp's great-grandfather, Joseph, lived in Bristol. Sepp's grandfather, Joseph Winner, was born in 1776. He married Elizabeth Evans, daughter of Captain Nathan Evans, a soldier of the Revolutionary War. Joseph and Elizabeth had seven children, including Joseph, Sep's father, and Septimus, Sep's namesake. Sep's father, Joseph, was an alcohol abuser. He made and repaired musical instruments. There were several moves for the family as Sep grew up. It's unclear if he had any schooling at all outside of the home 
until he attended a school in Wyoming Valley near Wilkesbury around 1839. The family moved back to Philadelphia in 1843, where Sepp, at age 16, attended Central High School. It was still located on Juniper Street, facing Penn Square, or Central Square. He graduated in 1847, but it is also unclear if he took any lessons in music or composition. After graduating from Central, Sepp wasted no time. On 25 November 1847, he married Hannah Jane Geyer, 1827-1918, whom he had courted by writing poems. He and Hannah also had seven children. Sepp tried to make his living as a violin instructor. He's known to have had ten students as early as January 1846, when he was still a junior in high school. He wrote and he published poems. He became involved with Graham's Magazine at the time that Edgar Allan Poe was editing it, and the two became friends. Sepp's uncle William was also a friend of Poe's and probably helped Sepp get a poem published in Graham's while he was still in high school. The publisher, George Rex Graham, 1813-1894, is interred at Laurel Hill East in Section K. In 1848, Sepp opened a music studio at 7 Arcade East. I have not been able to figure out where that is in modern terms. He became a member of several music clubs, including the Musical Fun Society Orchestra, the Sicilian Music Society with a large chorus, and the Philadelphia Brass Band. His daughter, Emily Hawthorne Winner, was born on 27 August 1848. His income was initially limited, but it had improved in 1849. He took lessons from Leopold Minion, and he wrote music every chance he got. He worked out his compositions on a violin rather than on a piano. The instrument he used had been made by his father using wood from Independence Hall during one of its many renovations. As he started to publish his own works in 1853, it was under the name Alice Hawthorne. Why he chose to publish under a woman's name has never been adequately explained beyond, it was a tribute to my mother. It was in 1855, while Sepp was walking through downtown Philadelphia, that he heard an African-American street musician whistle a tune. Richard Milburn, known as Whistling Dick, played guitar and whistled on Philadelphia streets, busking for money. One of his entertainments was to imitate a mockingbird by whistling a particular melody. Winner took this melody, and he wrote lyrics to it, and he published it as Listen to the Mockingbird, through his own publishing company, Winner & Schuster. He listed the songwriting credits as Melody by Richard Milburn, written and arranged by Alice Hawthorne. Mockingbird became one of the most popular songs of its time. Both Union and Rebel troops used it as a marching song during the Civil War, and Abraham Lincoln was particularly fond of it. He said, It is as sincere as the laughter of a little girl at play. People danced to listen to the Mockingbird on the White House lawn the night after Robert E. Lee surrendered at Appomattox. Despite its upbeat feel, the song is a sad one. The singer is dreaming of his sweetheart, who is now dead and buried. The Mockingbird that they used to enjoy together 
is now singing over her grave. I'm dreaming now of Hallie, sweet Hallie, my sweet Hallie. I'm dreaming tonight of Hallie, for the thought of her is one that never dies. She's sleeping now in the valley, in the valley, my sweet Hallie. She's sleeping tonight in the valley, and the mockingbird is singing where she lies. Listen to the mockingbird, listen to the mockingbird, for the mockingbird is singing o'er her grave. Listen to the mockingbird, listen to the mockingbird, still singing where the weeping willow waves. Sepp did not reap significant financial rewards from listening to the Mockingbird. He quickly sold the copyright to another Philadelphia publisher, Leon Walker, soon after its publication. One source says he sold it for $5, another says $35. But after that, subsequent editions omitted Whistling Dick Milburn as the composer, and it gave the writing credit solely to Alice Hawthorne. It's only within the last few years this slight to Milburn has been recognized and remedied, and his name is back on the sheet music. Milburn sometimes worked for Sepp as an errand runner and as a barber. It is quite likely he never made a penny from writing the melody to listen to the Mockingbird. During the last half of the 19th century, the sheet music for Listen to the Mockingbird sold more than 20 million copies in America and Europe before the emergence of recorded music. On recordings, it has sold another estimated 30 million copies. It has been turned into a quick step, a waltz, a fantasia, a gallop, a polka, a polonaise, a quadrille, a barcarolle, a shottish, a march, a mazurka, a nocturne, a minuet, and a rondo. The song became ubiquitous. Singers started recording it as soon as 1891. Opera singer Alma Gluck recorded it in 1915. I mentioned Gluck in an earlier podcast about the Saturday Evening Post as her husband was violinist Ephraim Zimbalist, first director of the Curtis Institute and second husband to Curtis Institute founder Mary Louise Curtis. If you remember the old TV show 77 Sunset Strip and the FBI, the actor Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. is his son and the actress Stephanie Zimbalist is his granddaughter. If you're a Three Stooges fan, you'll remember that an instrumental version of Mockingbird 
served as their theme song from 1935 to 1938. That is the first of two Three Stooges references today. You might have also heard it on Barney and Friends. SpongeBob SquarePants, it was transformed into a Hawaiian version. It was incorrectly used in the 2004 movie version of The Alamo when Billy Bob Thornton, as Davy Crockett, played this 1854 song on his fiddle in 1836. Even jazz men picked it up. I have found recordings by Jimmy Dorsey, Woody Herman, and the man himself, Louis Armstrong. Bluegrass performers Ralph Stanley, Lester Flatt have recorded the tune. Hundreds of versions are available through Amazon.com. Publishers Lee and Walker, who obtained the song from SEP for either $5 or $35, later estimated they made about $3 million from it. In 1854, SEP started writing a series of music books for children, also as Alice Hawthorne. By the time he died, he had written 200 books for at least 23 separate musical instruments, everything from the accordion to the zither. In 1857, Sepp took on a new partner in Winner and Kirk Publishing at 110 North 8th Street. That's now the location of PennDOT Driver's License Center. Their first big seller was the Edwin Forrest Quickstep, named for Philadelphia's most famous homegrown actor. Edwin W. Kirk, his partner, is interred in the O section of Laurel Hill East. Edwin Forrest, alas, is not at Laurel Hill. It wasn't until 1858 that Sepp started publishing music under his own name, although he continued to use other names, including Percy Geyer. Remember that Geyer was his wife's maiden name. Mark Mason, Apsley Street, <laughs> There's actually a road in Germantown called Apsley Street. And Paul Stenton, he, that was named after the nearby Stenton Avenue. Again, expanding his business, he moved the publishing house to 716 Spring Garden, where it stayed for the next 20 years. He must have wondered whether using his own name was a good idea when a local music critic launched into a review of his songs and suggested he would do better if he took Alice Hawthorne as his model. There is no record of Sepp Winter serving in the military when the Civil War broke out in 1861. He was 34 years old, but his father enlisted when he was 60. His musical contributions to the war effort included Wanted a Substitute, The Substitute Broker, grafted into the army, not drafted, but grafted, he's gone to the arms of Abraham, Abraham's daughter, or raw recruits, may have been his biggest wartime hit. And although he was a staunch Unionist, he was not an abolitionist. It was during the war that he also got into deep trouble with one of his songs. 
Four days after the Union Army defeated Bull Run on 21 July 1861, President Lincoln appointed the 35-year-old charismatic West Point graduate and Philadelphian George Britton McClellan as commanding officer of the Army of the Potomac. A few months later, in November, McClellan was promoted to commander-in-chief of the Union armies. You heard about McClellan's father, also named George, in All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories number 46, Fathers of American Medicine, Part 3, Some Ethical Dilemmas. Like Sepp, General McClellan was also opposed to abolition. But as a leader, he showed a consistent lack of initiative to move forward. He always overestimated the strength of the enemy and underestimated his own capabilities. Newspapers took to calling him Mac the Unready and the Little Corporal of Unsought Fields. Plus, McClellan intensely disliked Abraham Lincoln, whom he called, quote, nothing more than a well-meaning baboon, a gorilla, ever unworthy of his high position. Lincoln became more and more annoyed by McClellan's lack of initiative to attack, and in January 1862 said in private, If General McClellan does not wish to use the army, I would like to borrow it for a time. After a year of hesitations and hedges, Lincoln removed McClellan from his role as general-in-chief, but left him in charge of the Army of the Potomac. Lincoln told War Secretary Stanton, We must use what tools we have. There's no man in the army who can man these fortifications and lick these troops of ours into shape half as well as he. If he can't fight himself, he excels in making others ready to fight. After McClellan's failure to pursue Lee after the Battle of Antietam, Lincoln had enough and removed him from command on 5 November 1862. He put Major General Ambrose Burnside in charge. A later historian summed up McClellan as merely an attractive but vain and unstable man with considerable military knowledge who sat a horse well and who wanted to be president. His charisma was undeniable, and many people clamored for his return to power after Burnside's disaster at Fredericksburg. On a chance trip to Washington, Sepp witnessed a stirring event. He saw and heard thousands of Union soldiers shouting, Give us back our little Mac! at a rally. I find no evidence that Sepp Winter and George McClellan knew each other in Philadelphia. But it was clear where Sepp's sentiments lay when he composed and published under his own name the song called Give Us Back Our Old Commander, Little Mac the People's Pride. Within days, the sheet music had sold 80,000 copies, and soldiers of the Army of the Potomac were singing it during their day's work and around their campfires at night. Popular singer Julia Mortimer started singing it at her appearances at Ford's Theater. Lincoln, and especially Secretary of War Stanton, were infuriated. When Stanton finally had enough, he issued a general order that declared any performance of this song would be considered treason, and he authorized the arrest of anyone caught singing it. 
This was during the time when Lincoln had already suspended the writ of habeas corpus. So if you were arrested, you didn't even have the right to have your incarceration reviewed by the court. Although some authors report that Sepp was arrested, jailed, and charged with sedition, that overstates what happened. He was visited by government agents, and he agreed to stop publishing the sheet music, and that seemed to settle the matter. There is no record of any arrest or imprisonment. But in 1962, there was a newspaper article that said Winter was, quote, arrested and court-martialed for sedition, end quote. Uh, Since he was not active duty military, I'm not sure how he was court-martialed. As late as 1984, there was a brief article in the Philadelphia Inquirer stating that Sepp had been, quote, arrested for treason, which is, of course, a hanging offense. I found an article from 1942 which said, many persons were thrown in jail for singing the song. But if you look at newspapers from 1861 to 1865, there is no mention of the song, and the only time I could find Sepp Winner's name was in ads for his music studio and his publishing business. Between 1863 and 1865, Sepp published 39 new vocal and instrumental compositions, 29 under his own name, 10 as Alice Hawthorne including Down Upon the Rappahannock, Comet Waltz, Sunshine Polka, Drummer Boy's March, and Greenback Quickstep. He got a new lithographer for his sheet music cover, George Swain. Swain is interred at Laurel Hill East in Section L. In 1864, his next hit had nothing to do with the war. It was a folk song he borrowed from the large German population in Philadelphia. The song was called Im Lauterbach hab ich mein Strumpf verloren. But his new lyrics were in English. Oh, where, oh, where is mein little dog gone? Oh, where, oh, where can he be? His ears cut short and his tail cut long. Oh, where, oh, where is he? I love my lager, tis very good beer. Oh, where, oh, where can he be? But mit no money I cannot drink here. Oh, where, oh, where is he? When sausage is good, bologna, of course, oh, where, oh, where can he be? They makes him mid dog, and they makes him mid horse. I guess they makes him mid he. This was almost an immediate hit, and I'm afraid it's going to be stuck in your ear for the next hour or two. Convert the little penny, that's me. Press the button, that's me. Right in
He started publishing a magazine called The Musical Journal under his Alice Hawthorne persona. It was an attempt to break into the lucrative women's magazine market, but with an emphasis on music rather than on fashion or recipes. He also contributed one song monthly to the popular Peterson's magazine. Its founder, Charles Jacob Peterson, is interred at Laurel Hill East in Section G. Between 1866 and 1870, the winner published at least 37 new original compositions, again using various noms de plume. Another post-war hit was composed during the war in 1864. Sepp had a party at his home for the neighborhood children who pleaded with him to write a song just for them. And in a very short time, he had written a childish song with simple lyrics and a typical catchy melody. He called it Ten Little Engines. He was initially embarrassed about even trying to publish it, despite having several pseudonyms to choose from, but he was eventually convinced to do so. The tune is inescapable, and the original lyrics are surprisingly grotesque. They remind me of Edward Gorey's Gashley Crumb Tinies. Ten little engines going out to dine. One choked his little self, and then there were nine. Seven little engines cutting up sticks. One chopped himself in half, and then there were six. Six little engines playing with a hive. The bumblebees killed one, and then there were five. Two little engines sitting in the sun. One got frizzled up, and then there was one. So you get the idea. He wrote a hymn called Whispering Hope that caught on. In fact, as late as 1961, it was listed as the fourth most popular hymn in the United States, following Amazing Grace, How Great Thou Art, and Old Rugged Cross. And it finished ahead of Rock of Ages. In the 20th century, everyone from Pat Boone to Charlie Pride has recorded Whispering Hope. Till the darkness is over Wait till the tempest is done Hope for the sunshine tomorrow After the shower One more Sep Winter song to share with you. Although I can't tell you exactly when it was written. After all, the man wrote nearly 2,000 songs in his long life. It's time for my second reference to the Three Stooges. You may not forgive me for playing this. 
if the other songs hang around for hours, this one may be there for days. I discovered it, I guess, about a week and a half ago, and every day I found myself singing part of it out loud. Ready, sister? Let's get that junk out of here. Come on, boys. Scram. I'll give you the idea in a nutshell. B-A-Bay. B-E-B. B-I-Dicky-Bye. B-O-Bo. I'll give you the correct demonstration. Cutie Pie, pound those horse teeth. B-A Bay, B-E-B, B-I Bicky Bye, B-O Bo, Bicky Bye Bo, B-U Boo, Bicky Bye Bo Boo. Get the idea, girls? Now we'll all join together on the letter D. D-A-Day, D-E-D. that as the alphabet song the three stooges recorded it as swinging the alphabet from the short violent is the word for curly you can find it on youtube sep's output began to drop after 1880 but he seemed to be living comfortably on his royalties probably more so from his instruction books than from his sheet music on 22 November 1902, President Theodore Roosevelt visited Philadelphia to dedicate the new Central High School building at Broad and Green. Sepp, now 75 years old, went to his alma mater to see the president, and he exchanged pleasantries with him. Afterwards, he went back to his home at 1706 North 16th Street and apparently had a heart attack and died. He was survived by his wife, and three of the seven children they had together, the other four, had perished. His book of poetry, Cogitations of a Crank, was published posthumously. After services at the Oxford Presbyterian Church, at which no music was played, he was interred with Masonic services at Laurel Hill West in the Montgomery section, lot 16. It's a small, simple stone. However, I think you can anticipate that some of his songs will outlive him by a few hundred years. And one or two will probably live in your brain and ear for at least a few hours.
Here is your musical trivia question for the day. What two popular Christmas carols were written in 19th century Philadelphia? Philip Brooks, 1835 to 1893, was an Episcopal priest and rector of the Church of the Holy Trinity, which was designed by Laurel Hill East architect John Notman and is located on Rittenhouse Square. When the Civil War ended in 1865, Brooks took a sabbatical to the Holy Land, and he was inspired by a visit to Bethlehem. Three years later, he was looking for something fresh to present at Christmas time, and he jotted down a poem which became the lyrics to O Little Town of Bethlehem. The church organist, Louis Redner, 1831-1908, added the music. Both men thought the song would be forgotten after the holy season was over. It wasn't. In my own rather modest collection of Christmas music, I have more than 55 versions. Everyone from Mahalia Jackson and Sister Rosetta Tharp to the Heath Brothers and Elvis Presley. Alas, Brooks finished his career in Boston. He's interred at Mount Auburn in Cambridge. Redner is buried in Philadelphia, but he's at Mount Moriah Cemetery. Sister Rosetta Tharp, the mother of rock and roll, is interred at the little-visited Northwood Cemetery on West Oak Lane in Philadelphia. And the Heath brothers, Percy, Jimmy, and Tootie, they all grew up in North Philadelphia. The Laurel Hill Christmas Carol connection is William James Kirkpatrick, an Irish-born American hymn writer who produced and published more than 1,000 gospel hymn songs and over 60 hymnal books. Many became standards, and one, Away in a Manger, became a beloved Christmas carol. Kirkpatrick was born in the parish of Aragal, Kirug, County Tyrone, Ireland, to a schoolteacher and musician, Thomas Kirkpatrick, and his wife, Elizabeth Story. The family immigrated to Philadelphia on 5 August 1840, living first in Duncannon, Pennsylvania. Duncannon is in Perry County. It's close to Harrisburg and Carlisle. From 1904 until 1988, it was the home for Lightning Guider Sleds, and the Appalachian Trail runs through the town, mainly along North High Street. Now, William did not accompany his parents on the initial immigration, as he was too young and they wished to be settled before bringing him to America. Elizabeth did, however, give birth to a daughter on the ship in transit. William was exposed to and given formal training in music at a very young age. In 1854, at age 16, he moved to Philadelphia to study music and carpentry. It was here that he studied vocal music under Professor T. Bishop. Kirkpatrick was a versatile musician. He played the cello, the fife, flute, organ, and violin. He joined the Harmonia and the Haydn Sacred Music Societies, where he was exposed to many great composers. He worked with the seemingly ubiquitous Harry Gordon Thunder, who was interred at Laurel Hill West in the river section, and whose name frequently pops up when I speak of late 19th and early 20th century music in Philadelphia. In 1855, he became involved in the Horton Street Methodist Episcopal Church at 4th and Horton in South Philadelphia. It had opened in 1842. He served in the choir, and he taught Sunday school. Beginning in 1858, Kirkpatrick worked with A.S. Jenks, 
1820 to 1875, Laurel Hill East, Section 9, who helped him publish his first collection of hymns, Devotional Melodies, in 1859. His involvement with the Harmonious Society introduced him to another man, Dr. Leopold Minion, under whose tutelage he devoted himself primarily to the study of music focusing on theory and composition. You heard me mention Minion when I talked about Sepp Winner earlier in the podcast. And although he is not buried at Laurel Hill and has no entry in Find a Grave, Minion's 1873 obituary said he was to be interred at New Cathedral Cemetery in Philadelphia. In 1861, at 24, William Kirkpatrick married Susanna J. Doak. The next year, they had a son. The Civil War had started, and not long after the marriage, he enlisted in the 91st Regiment of the Pennsylvania Volunteers as a fife major. During the Revolutionary War, music was supplied almost exclusively by the fife and drum corps. But in peacetime, soldiers had formed brass bands and the fife had almost disappeared. It was an excellent instrument for marching in wartime, since its piercing sound could travel a great distance and its small size made it portable. The 91st Pennsylvania Infantry Regiment was founded by Edgar M. Gregory, an abolitionist who had a stop on the Underground Railway. His regiment fought in 21 battles and was on Little Round Top at the Battle of Gettysburg. The regiment was also present at the surrender of the Army of Northern Virginia at the Appomattox Courthouse. General Edgar Gregory and his wife were interred at Laurel Hill East, Section 16. After mustering out in October 1862, Kirkpatrick returned to Philadelphia and supported his family by working as a carpenter. Over the next 11 years, he was elected lead organist for the Ebenezer Methodist Episcopal Church, studied the pipe organ, continued in vocal lessons, and began publishing more and more hymns. Inspiration for many of his hymns came from daily experiences. Kirkpatrick participated in many of the camp meetings that the Methodist churches conducted and often led the music portion of the meeting. He enlisted the help of soloists and other musicians to perform for the attendees. During one of these meetings, he was saddened by his observation of a soloist who would perform the required songs and then leave without staying to hear the preacher. William feared that this young man did not really know Christ and so he began to pray that God would somehow get a hold of the soloist's heart. One evening while he was praying, a song began to form in his mind. He quickly jotted down the lyrics and asked the soloist to sing the song that night. The song apparently touched the young man's heart. He stayed and listened to the message, and when the preacher gave the altar call at the end of the night, the soloist got up and went to the front of the tent 
and accepted Jesus into his heart. The lyrics that so touched this young man and many people since are, I've wandered far away from God, now I'm coming home. The paths of sin too long I've trod, Lord, I'm coming home. Coming home, coming home, never more to roam. Open now thine arms of love, Lord, I'm coming home. I've wandered far away from God, now I'm coming home. The paths of sin too long I've trod, Lord, I'm coming. Coming Home was based on the story of the prodigal son, found in Luke 15. Sometimes Williams would take other people's lyrics or poems and convert them into hymns. Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus has music by Kirkpatrick and lyrics written in 1882 by Louisa M. R. Stead. Stead was born in Dover, England in 1850. She converted to Christianity at the age of nine. In 1871, at the age of 21, she immigrated to the United States and resided in Cincinnati. That year, she attended a camp meeting in Urbana, Ohio, where she felt the call of God to be a missionary to China, a call she had previously felt in her teenage years. But due to her health, she was unable to travel. Four years later, she married and moved to New York City, where she had her daughter, Lily. When Lily was four years old, Stead and her family visited the Long Island Sound when they heard the frantic sounds of a drowning boy. Stead's husband jumped into the sound as an attempt to save the child, but tragically both died in the incident before both Stead and her daughter's eyes. It is believed that this disaster provided the inspiration for the lyrics of the song Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus Just to take him at his word Just to rest upon his promise Just to know that it was said by God oh, 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 Jesus, Jesus How I trust you How I Then there was the poem by Fanny Crosby. Fanny was born in 1820 in Putnam County, New York. When she was six weeks old, she had a head cold, and a local country doctor applied a mustard plaster to her scalp. The caustic material meant to provide heat to her skin 
apparently leaked into her eyes and purportedly blinded her. Although it is more likely that Crosby had been blind at birth and her parents did not notice until this event. Fanny Crosby went on to write more than 8,000 hymns and gospel songs under 200 different pseudonyms, plus another thousand poems. Kirkpatrick put music to one of her poems, He Hideth My Soul, which became a very popular hymn. Oh, wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord. Oh, wonderful Savior to me. It was also during this time that he was introduced to John R. Sweeney, 1837 to 1899. He's buried in Chester, Pennsylvania. They soon became music partners. The death of Kirkpatrick's wife in 1878, she was only 37 years old, acted as a catalyst in his life to give up the carpentry trade and devote himself fully to music and composition. Between 1880 in 1897, Kirkpatrick and Sweeney published 49 major books. You can find many of them on archives.net. It was also during this time that Kirkpatrick was given command over all the music at Grace Methodist Episcopal Church. Another Kirkpatrick song that made it into many hymnals was Will Your Anchor Hold? This had lyrics by Baltimore Sunday School teacher Priscilla Owens. It was inspired by the Epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 6, verse 19, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. This song has been closely associated with the Boys Brigade, an international youth organization founded in Scotland in 1883 by Sir William Alexander Smith. It has the motto, sure and steadfast.
William married again in 1893, this time to Sarah Lankford Kellogg, but they had no other children. The two of them became world travelers. He continued writing into old age, and in addition to more than a thousand hymns, he published close to 100 major works and many annual works, such as anthems for Easter, Christmas, children's choirs. William also outlived Sarah, who died in 1917. But he had become friends with the widow of his old writing partner, John Sweeney, and Lizzie Sweeney became his third wife. In 1895, he composed the song for which he will be remembered forever. It was long claimed to be the work of German religious reformer Martin Luther. In fact, you can find early versions of it entitled Luther's Cradle Song. But research has shown the carol is wholly American in origin. Kirkpatrick first published as part of the collection Around the World with Christmas in 1895. Kirkpatrick's melody for Away in a Manger was later published in numerous hymn books. September 1921, William Kirkpatrick, now 83 years old, told Lizzie that he had a tune running through his head and he wanted to write it down before he lost it. Lizzie went to bed, but she awoke in the middle of the night to find that he was not there. She went to his study and she found him slumped over his desk, dead. His interment 
was in the summit section of Laurel Hill West, marked by a modest obelisk. His first two wives are with him. His plot is literally just feet from the conservatory and the bell tower, and there's actually a parking space in front of it. A reminder, if you like the podcast, if you like All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, and Biographical Bites from Bala, tell your friends, leave a review at Apple Podcast. It really does help. I appreciate it. Lots of September activities. Holy cow. It starts on the 1st. If you're listening the day this is released, you've probably missed it already. There's a Hot Spots tour from 10 until noon at Laurel Hill East with Mary Ellen Moran, one of our more experienced tour guides, taking you on that. I hope you downloaded it early and you can run over to the cemetery and go on that tour. Saturday the 9th. From noon until 5, one of our big fundraisers, the Market of the Macabre, there will be several dozen craftspeople there with things that they have made or collected, along with food and drinks and live music and even 30-minute free mini-tours once you are inside. It's only $5 in advance. If you choose to wait until the gate, it's $10. You will see hundreds of people, many of them dressed in costumes, at the Market of the Macabre. It's one of my favorite events at Laurel Hill East. Wednesday, September 13th, from 5.30 until 8.30, behind the Shroud, an open house at Laurel Hill West. And we are a fringe site again this year. It's been a few years, but we've got a bunch of stuff coming up for Fringe Festival. Uh, Let's see. We start with Thursday, September 14th, 7.30 or 8.30 p.m. There are two shows that night inside the receiving vault with a show called Slash Red Room Slash by Curly Fish Productions. The next day, Friday the 15th, also Saturday the 16th and the 17th at 6 o'clock, Dying Well. Saturday the 16th from 2 until 5, Recolon Claim, Poetry and Violin. That's down at the Edward Bach Pergola, down by the river. Also on Saturday the 16th, plus the 17th, 18th, and 19th at 7 p.m. And then there is a matinee on the 17th of An Undertaking. Sunday the 17th at 7 p.m., Dark Places at East. Music and Drama from the Perspective Collective. And Friday, the 22nd, also the 23rd, the 28th, 29th, and 30th, 7 p.m. at East. Phantasmagoria, an immersive performance piece by Altera Productions. Phantasmagoria is also the name of a book of poems. Actually, no, it's a poem by Lewis Carroll. And the book that he published it in had illustrations by A.B. Frost, who's buried at Laurel Hill East. It's kind of a nice little coincidence. And back to the regular stuff at the cemetery. Saturday the 16th, Nature in a Victorian Cemetery, 10 a.m. at West with Jen Kravinskis. Sunday the 17th, Pints and Plots, 
Brewmasters of Laurel Hill. It goes from 1 until 4 p.m. because it's at both cemeteries. Start out at Laurel Hill West and then drive over to Laurel Hill East to finish. Mike Lewandowski is doing that one as he's done for several years. There's an accessible hotspots tour on Friday the 22nd at 10 a.m. Alex Smallberger will be your tour for that. And then on the 23rd from 10 a.m. until 11.30, Sacred Spaces. That is at West. That's an introductory tour at West. Again, Mary Ellen Moran, one of the people who's certified to give tours at both cemeteries. Thursday the 28th, 6 p.m., Boneyard Bookworms. Look at the website for more information on that. And finishing up the month on the 30th, 1 p.m., a brand new tour by Rich Wilhelm. It's called Laurel Hill Encounters with Thomas P. Cope's Diary. Even though the merchant Thomas P. Cope is not buried at Laurel Hill East, he wrote a very extensive diary, and there are a lot of familiar names in it, people who are buried at East. Rich has done the research. I'm really looking forward to that tour. I think it's going to be a good one. I think I'm going to hear about some people that I haven't heard about before. Okay, that's what's coming up at the cemetery. Let's get back to the podcast. Jilda Woods had an ear for music. After all, she was married to one of the top disc jockeys in the city, Georgie Woods, the man with the goods, the man who coined the phrase blue-eyed soul and advised Dick Clark about who was popular among black youth in Philadelphia. For several decades, Georgie Woods ruled the airwaves from his thrones at WDAS and WHAT, and he hosted at Philadelphia's Uptown Theater, the equivalent to New York's Apollo, where little-known R&B acts would perform on their way up the ladder. Gilda, whose name was spelled Gilda but with a soft G, was not involved in Georgie's radio life, but she was a huge presence backstage at the Uptown, and was nationally known as the welcoming hostess. Her ears were always open for new sounds. Jilda Baxter had met Georgie Woods after one of his rock and roll shows at the Nixon Theater at 34 South 52nd Street. She bumped into him at the corner Horn and Hard Art, where they'd both gone for an after-show coffee. Jilda wasn't confident about her own looks. She later said that she looked like Popeye's girlfriend, Olive Oil. But she went to a charm school run by local television personality Trudy Haynes and gained confidence. Jilda and Georgie married in 1966. Jilda independently developed connections with a few of the city's record labels, particularly Jamie Guyden, whose owner, Harry Lipsius, was open to new sounds. Jamie's big seller for several years had been Dwayne Eddy. In the summer of 1967, Jilda was driving along Lehigh Avenue. When she passed a playground near 2nd Street, she saw two young people singing to a group of enthusiastic children. Out of curiosity, she stopped to listen and realized they sounded really, really good. She asked their names. The girl was Brenda Payton, born in October 1945. Raised in North Philadelphia, she'd started singing when she was five in the choir of Polite Temple Baptist Church, which was named for its founding pastor, the Reverend Collins Nichols Polite. 
It was located on Rittenhouse Street in Germantown. By age 14, Brenda was singing with the group The Joy Lets, but they didn't stick together for very long. She knew that she was a good singer, but she had no idea how to use her gift. She temporarily veered away from her dreams when she married James Rucker, who, as it turned out, had his own musical dreams. By 1966, Brenda was working for the city as a playground supervisor, along with a high school student named Maurice Coates, a happy-go-lucky type with a tendency to sing while he worked. And the kids loved it. Maurice and Brenda often harmonized together for the children, right out in plain sight where passers-by would often stop and take notice. If smartphones and TikTok had existed in the mid-1960s, they probably would have been a huge sensation. Jilda stopped to chat and asked if they had any original material. They lied. (laughs) They said yes. And then they agreed to meet at Maurice's house a few days later so Jilda could hear what they had. And now they had to write something. They came up with a slow, sad ballad called Dry Your Eyes. It's been so long since you've gone away, and maybe when you come back you'll be home to stay. But in the meantime, while I'm so lonely and so blue, why don't you tell me now, tell me now, what am I going to do? As soon as they sang it for Jilda, she offered to be their manager. With a promising new act and new song, Lipsius gave Woods the green light to record. And thus, the Dion label was born, D-I-O-N-N, and a recording session was scheduled. Guitarist Eddie Jackson and Brenda's husband, James Rucker, were recruited. The group needed a name. Jilda opened a dictionary and leafed through it. The first word that caught her eye was tabulate. She liked the connotation, as in counting all that money they were going to make. The band, centered on Peyton as lead singer, became Brenda and the Tabulations. The song's deeply sentimental lyrics were unlike anything Jilda had heard. They suggested a custody situation of a parent with visitation rights, although you could interpret the lyrics differently. Brenda's vocal verges on the heartbreaking. I am so sorry to see you cry. Wipe those tears from your eyes so long. Mother's got to go now. Jilda brought in experienced Philly-based producer Bob Finnis to produce the session, and he succeeded in drawing the emotion out of Brenda for the finished take. became a top 10 R&B hit in the spring of 1967. It also crossed over to mainstream top 40 stations and was in the top 20 on the pop charts. The flip side, The Wash, 
lightened the A-side's anguish tone considerably. It was this mindless but really infectious dance tune, an earworm, that encouraged listeners to take the moves they make with the soap in the shower out onto the dance floor. It did not catch on. But years later, the male grooming product Axe used the tune in a raunchy commercial for their body wash. You can find it on YouTube. So now, less than six months after being spotted at a Kensington playground, Brenda and the Tabulations were performing at the Apollo Theater in New York. They spent most of 1967 on the road, opening for other acts. Maurice Coates managed to finish high school. He continued his studies on the road, and he graduated with his class. The second single on Dion became a two-sided hit. Stay Together Young Lovers was written by Tom Bell and Lorraine Ellison, a dynamic soul singer in her own right. Bell had been classically trained as a musician, and as a teenager he sang with Kenny Gamble, Leon Huff, Daryl Hall, and others. He'd worked as a session player and arranger for Cameo Records, which was founded in Philadelphia in 1956. In 1967, Bell was introduced to a local group called the Delphonics, who had met at Overbrook High School. His production talents yielded several big hits, really huge hits for them, including La La Means I Love You and Didn't I Blow Your Mind This Time. Tom Bell, who was in the Songwriters Hall of Fame, died last year at 79 in Washington State. Here's part of Brenda's version of Stay Together, Young Lovers. together was coupled with Who's Lovin' You from Smokey Robinson's catalog of creations. That song made it to Keith Richards' Desert Island Discs when he was interviewed on BBC Four in 2005. When I you near, I you 
These early tabulation tracks stood apart from most of the highly structured soul productions coming out of Philadelphia and other big eastern cities at the time. Instead of a lush orchestral backing, the spare arrangements highlighted Brenda's passionate vocals. But with Brenda as the group's central focus, the male members became interchangeable background singers. Maurice and Brenda took their songwriting seriously, yet many of their later efforts sounded just a tad too close to dry your eyes. Producer Bob Phoenix contributed When You're Gone, which did a little better on the charts, but the group needed to break from all the ballads they were releasing. The up-tempo Baby You're So Right For Me was written by Gary Klein and Jimmy Roach, and it climbed the pop charts. B stations preferred the flip side, Phoenix's To the One I Love, which was yet another ballad. Between 1967 and 1969, eight Tabulations 45s were released on Dion. But for reasons of her own, Jilda Woods dissolved the label. The Jamie slash Guiden group replaced it with a new imprint, Top and Bottom Records. And with that switch, there were several shakeups. Rucker became harder to work with as his wife's public recognition was rising, and the others led by Coates shut him out of the group. Singer Bernard Murphy and drummer Jerry Jones came on board to replace him. Their first top and bottom single, The Touch of You, was written by Jones and Jackson. It appeared in early 1970. This was the group's strongest seller since Dry Your Eyes. The touch of Gilda hired Van McCoy to produce and write songs for them. McCoy had an impressive track record with girl groups like the Shirelles and the Exciters, and female-led acts like Gladys Knight and the Pips and Ruby and the Romantics. His input kept Brenda charting regularly for the next two years, but with one major change. The men weren't factored in, although Maurice and Brenda kept writing songs together. Deborah Martin and Pat Mercer were added, and the act became a female trio with a backing band. The hottest single during this time 
was right on the tip of my tongue, a Van McCoy Joe Cobb composition that put them in the R&B Top 10 and the Pop Top 40 in the spring of 1971. Peyton remained a part of the music scene into the late 1970s, even adapting to the disco movement mid-decade under the constant guidance of Jilda Woods. McCoy composed and produced one minor hit for Epic in 1973, One Girl Too Late. By 1976, Brenda was recording for Chocolate City, a subsidiary of Neil Bogart's Casablanca Records, still under the Brenda and the Tabulations name, but with hired backing singers both in the studio and on stage. She charted two singles on the soul charts, which had been the R&B charts, including I'm a Superstar in 1977. James Rucker took different paths. She married Jim Hill in 1985, and they started Pay Hill Production Group and A Major Record Company. She sang backup with Melba Moore, Patti LaBelle, Stevie Wonder, and others. She worked with a reggae group, House of Assembly. Eventually, she was joined in singing backup by her daughter, Kenyatta R. Payton. Janice Smith, a friend of Hill since their teens, said, she had a very outgoing personality and was a very determined person. 
She was caring and she was dedicated. She loved show business. She mixed easily with everybody. You met her one time and you loved her. She liked to laugh and was known for her smile. Her husband, Jim Hill, noted, In the music industry, everybody loved her personality. She had no enemies, and that's strange in the entertainment business. She loved it. It was her life. Brenda performed as long as she could. Her last gig was in late February of 1992 when she sang at the Chestnut Cabaret at 38th and Chestnut Streets. She died of breast cancer a few months later at age 46, and she was buried in the Telford section of Laurel Hill West. In addition to husband Jim and daughter Kenyatta, she was survived by two sons, Sylvester James Rucker and James E. Hill III, and three other daughters, Jewel and Tanya Mays and Renee, along with 11 grandchildren, five brothers and a sister. Her music lives on after her. Just how much of a Beatles fan are you? How well do you know your deep cuts? Does this sound familiar? was Some Other Guy. It was recorded live for the BBC in 1962, more than a year before Beatlemania hit America. The tune was co-written by Philadelphian Richard Barrett, who was going by Richie at the time. The other writers were two giants, Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, Hound Dog, Jailhouse Rock, Kansas City. They had more than 70 chart hits. Richie's version of his own song might remind you of Ray Charles doing What I Say. Richard Barrett was born in Philadelphia in 1933. In the early 1950s, as a teenager, he sang with an R&B harmony group called The Angels. And he was multi-talented. In addition to a fine singing voice, he also danced and choreographed. And he was learning how to arrange music. 
but he couldn't make a living writing and playing in Philly. So around 1952, he headed to New York City, where he squeaked by as a laborer during the day, primarily in landscaping, and he tried to find paying music gigs in the evening. At a party, he crossed paths with a local quartet called the Dreamers, and he talked about joining them. He offered them a song that he'd written, Summer's Love. The Dreamers liked the song so much, they added Barrett to their lineup just so they could get it. There was a quick name change to The Valentines, and that seemed to jumpstart their new configuration, and the quintet began getting noticed locally. About this time, Raul Sita, the pianist and the leader of the Harp Tones, who were the first doo-wop group to have a full-time arranger, had hit the charts with A Sunday Kind of Love, The Shrine of St. Cecilia, What Will I Tell My Heart. Raul took a liking to the Valentine's sound. He arranged an audition for them with Monty Bruce, who was starting up a label called Bruce Records. The session yielded a recording of Summer's Love, but Bruce was unable to release it, although it did get airplay from Harlem-based jazz DJ and former big band leader Willie Bryant, who is known as the Mayor of Harlem. Bryant's musical career had included time working with Bessie Smith in her 1934 Chocolate Review. At one time, members of his band included Teddy Wilson, Cozy Cole, Benny Carter, Ben Webster, and Taft Jordan. Bryant also occasionally emceed at the Apollo Theater in Harlem. With Bryant pushing their music on air, the Valentines built up a following in Harlem, and they got a single released of a new version of Summer's Love, backed with Tonight Kathleen on Old Town Records in November of 1954. Despite its popularity on the radio, the official release of Summer's Love never charted. But Tonight Kathleen extended the local popularity that Summer's Love had already earned the quintet. The group's next stop was with George Goldner's Rama Records, another relatively new label, but one that had better funding and distribution. Goldner had started in the late 1940s, releasing Latin big band recordings by Tito Puente, Joe Loco, Machito, and others. When big band music fell out of favor, he was ready to switch. Rama's third release was a one-hit wonder by the Crows called G. This was at a time when a cappella and doo-wop groups were naming themselves after birds. The flamingos, the robins, the orioles, the penguins, and many, many more. Purportedly, they were paying tribute to bebop pioneer Charlie Parker, whose nickname was Yardbird, or more simply, Bird. What surprised Goldner was how many white teenagers bought copies of G 
at a time when music was thought to be racially segregated. In fact, before the terms rhythm and blues and soul music were created, music like this was literally called race records. The Valentine's debut Rama release, Lily Maybell, co-authored by Barrett, was issued in the fall of 1955. It was picked up by DJ Alan Freed, who turned it into a regional hit that in turn transformed the Valentines into stars in Harlem. Even while performing and writing, Barrett was pursuing other goals that involved music. He was just as interested in the talent and business sides of the music business as he was in performing. He saw his opportunity to learn by working with Goldner, who had five years success behind him and knew the essentials of the business and then some. Goldner recognized Ritchie early on as a potentially serious music talent beyond his singing. Barrett started as a chauffeur and a jack-of-all-trades at Goldner's office, but he was soon making his own suggestions on creative and promotional matters. And even before the Valentine's record was released, Barrett brought prospective artists to audition. If they were signed, he worked with Goldner to produce the recording sessions. Barrett also fit in well with the Rama House Band, which was led by saxman Jimmy Wright. They found that they could work up arrangements together on the fly. During the second half of 1955, Barrett heard a quintet of Harlem teenagers doing a version of his song, Lily Maybell, on the street outside of his apartment building. He brought them to Goldner, who signed them up. The group took their name after their lead singer, and became Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers. In late 1955, the group recorded Why Do Fools Fall in Love, one of the defining hits of the early rock and roll era and the biggest selling record that Goldner ever released. Meanwhile, Barrett and his Valentines enjoyed a second local hit in the spring of 1956 with Woo Woo Train, but their fortunes were clearly on the wane. The group released two more singles without success in 1956. 
By the end of that year, Barrett's involvement with the Valentines was receding rapidly as he began concentrating much more on his production activities for Goldner. Most notable was his connection with a newly signed group called the Cleftones, whose vocal arrangements and stage choreography Barrett had a major hand in shaping. Early in 1957, not long before the Valentines disbanded, he brought in a quintet he had heard singing on another New York street. They went under the name of the Chantels. Barrett became their manager and producer, and their second release, maybe, was a huge hit, and it sold more than a million copies. to one source, quote, In the studio, Goldner and his right-hand man Richard Barrett had multifaceted jobs. Find the right key in the groove for a song. Collaborate with the musicians to create a head arrangement. Head arrangement is one that's not written down. Encourage and control young, often inexperienced singers during their maiden visits to the recording studio. Oversee the vocal balance by placing the singers at the proper distance from the microphone. Keep an eagle eye on the clock. Sessions were traditionally three hours in length. After that, overtime kicked in. And most importantly, recognize the magical best take that would ultimately click with the record-buying teenagers. End quote. Richie Barrett made one more major discovery, this time for Roulette Records, a successor to the Rama, G, End, and Gone labels, formed by Goldner's partner, Morris Levy, who was a co-founder of the jazz club Birdland and deeply involved with the Mafia. Because of his involvement in so many aspects of music, Levy's nickname was The Octopus. Music management types had found that radio stations did not like to play more than one or two songs from any label, so they kept inventing new labels. Levy was the inspiration for the character Hesh Rabkin on the television series The Sopranos. Oh, the group that Richie brought him? Little Anthony and the Imperials.
Maybe you've seen the 1998 film, Why Do Fools Fall in Love? It stars Halle Berry, Vivica A. Fox, Lorenz Tate. Ben Vereen played the role of Richie Barrett. Barrett left Goldner and Levy in 1960 to start his own label, Princeton Records. His major signing was the Veneers. It was a group like the Chantels. The Veneers never sold many records, but having them under contract served Barrett well when Arlene Smith, the Chantel's original lead singer, decided to leave. He tried taking over as lead singer on a pair of singles, Come Softly to Me, which was a cover of the Fleetwoods, and his earlier composition, Summer's Love. Again, the singles didn't sell. He also produced early recordings by the Isley Brothers and Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, and he crossed paths with Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff before either of them was very well known. After he returned to Philadelphia, he lived in Gladwin actually, he produced what was probably the most enduring act with which he has ever been associated, the Three Degrees. They enjoyed hits well into the 1970s, including a number one record of 1974 with TSOP, The Sound of Philadelphia, produced in association with Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff. For what it is worth, the Three Degrees are King Charles' favorite female music group. want to see that music put to good use go to YouTube and put in TSOP and Soul Train and watch the dancers come down the line with that music in the background what a treat in 2006 at age 73 Richard Richie Barrett died of pancreatic cancer at Pennsylvania Hospital his final services and cremation occurred at Laurel Hill West but I do not know the final resting places of his ashes. He is not yet memorialized on Philadelphia's Walk of Fame, but I think he should be. I've got two quick stories for you from Laurel Hill East. Usually when I combine the cemeteries in a podcast, the older interments are at East and the newer ones are at West. It's almost exactly the opposite here. Leonard Hubbard, original bass player for The Roots, better known as Hub, died early last year. His prime property is in Section S of Laurel Hill East, not far from Harry Callis, Frank Furness, and Henry Charles Lee. Laurel Hill has a policy. We're not supposed to talk about people until they've been gone for five years. And as much as I like The Roots, uh, I've only heard them play twice once at the North Sea Jazz Festival in Rotterdam. When they perform live, they sound like a group that is releasing music rather than playing music. I have not heard it that very often 
when I have attended concerts. Maybe Weather Report, George Clinton and P-Funk, Ustad Zakir Hussein. They sound like they're releasing music. And that's the way the roots are. But nonetheless, this 75-year-old white guy will not spend clumsy minutes trying to talk about the hip-hop and rap scene in Philadelphia, about which I know nothing. I even bought Questlove's autobiography, Mo Meta Blues, and it didn't help much. So Hub will go on a back burner. Still, I can't help but play one of his solos in which he quotes a fellow Laurel Hill East resident. Blessington is a different story. She was quite young when she died, only 30. She was on an upward trajectory with her music and her career when she was struck and killed by a careless driver on her way to a gig in Warminster in 1997. Fortunately, she made some recordings, which her family has made available for free download from the website www.phoebe, that's P-H-E-B-E, Dot org. From the hills of Kikoma to the California sun, Bobby shared the secret of my soul. Oh, trying to weather everything we done. Bobby Brayback kept me from going. One day I need to see the story. Let him see the way. He's looking for that woman, I won't be fine, zero But I'm a treat on my tomorrow, so just one single yesterday And that body next to mine The rain I'm just another word Phoebe's mother, Valencia Tamraz, was born in Baghdad in 1939 She came to the United States in 1960 she married Ronald Francis Blessington, and Phoebe was born in 1966, one of four children. Phoebe was named after an aunt, Phoebe Babayan, who had died the year before at age 35. Her name means the Shining One, and almost all of the information I have about her comes from either her website or her obituaries. She started singing young. Her performing career started on the TV show Al Albert's Showcase in her mid-twenties. Phoebe was in a duo with her good friend Brian Varhelyi, and they developed a huge following, especially in South New Jersey and at the shore. Brian had been playing in a group called Arthur's Museum. The duo became the house band for Barsky's Morning Show on Y100 Radio. Don't cry out loud Just keep it inside 
Brian now plays in a surf rock band called Coconuts with a Z. Phoebe then fronted a band called Slippery, and then another one called New Generation X. Ralph Passeri, manager of the Ocean Drive in Sea Isle City, where Phoebe performed at least once a week every summer, said, She was one of the nicest people in the world. She knew how to connect with people. She meant something different to everyone she knew. She might have had a conversation with someone for 20 minutes three years ago, and it made a difference in that person's life. She really affected everyone she came in contact with. Jimmy Kane, owner of Jimmy's in North Wildwood. People liked her so much because she liked people. She was a sweetheart. As a person, she was tops. She was a warm, nice person, someone you always wanted to be around. You held my hand when it was cold, when I was lost. Friends say Phoebe's stage presence was sheer magic. She would sing, dance, and interact with any crowd. She could turn a mopey group of strangers into a bunch of dancing fools in a matter of two songs. Chris Noon, the leader of the band Slippery, said, We've been around for a number of years as an all-male band, and she's the only female we ever thought of bringing in. In half a year, she became the focal point, because she was that dominant a personality, and she wouldn't allow anyone to perform less than their best. She always said she would never shortchange an audience, and she didn't. Every time she performed, she left something of herself on that stage. She was special. Well, she was so special that for years after her death, Slippery did not replace her. 
Phoebe was killed on 17 May 1997 while crossing a street to go to a gig in Warminster. Her father died five months later. Her sudden traumatic death at age 30 left a lot of musicians and friends shaken and grieving. She was laid to rest in the Tamrez family plot at Laurel Hill East in Section Y. Other relatives are interred not far away in Section X. She had no name on her gravestone for many years until her mother Valencia died in 2015 and then both names were inscribed. Her charitable organization, Phoebe's Helping Hands, which she and Brian started in 1994, raised more than $20,000 for charities such as the Leukemia Society of America and the Children's Miracle Network while she was alive. The fourth Fight for Kids benefit was held in her memory and spirit. And you can still contribute from her webpage, phoebe.org. That's P-H-E-B-E again. Slippery is still around as a party band. Eventually they did replace Phoebe with another singer. And you can find them on the web. music is available for anyone who wants to listen from the website her family has kept up for the past few decades. Here's a good one for you to listen to when you visit her gravesite. When we've been there 10,000 years Bright shining, shining as the sun We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved, saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. Was blind, but now, now I
stony plots that are covered with mid-September edition of Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, I will tell you of a recent Laurel Hill West discovery. Glenna Collette Vare is considered the best American woman golfer of the first quarter of the 20th century. She won the women's amateur a record-setting six times, and to this day, the Ladies Professional Golf Association gives the Vare Award to the female golfer with the lowest average score during the prior season. And yet this woman has no marker for her grave. Glenna Collette Vare. You will hear all about her in the next episode of Biographical Bites from Bala. The October edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, is called The Supremes. Robert Greer sat on the United States Supreme Court for 24 years and weighed in on some of the most important decisions of the 19th century, including the Dred Scott decision. George Sharswood has a neighborhood near Brewerytown named for him. He was dean of the Penn Law School, and he sat on the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania for 14 years. One of his decisions may have delayed women's suffrage in Pennsylvania by more than 30 years. And James T. Mitchell sat on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court for 14 years, and he served as editor of the American Law Register for a quarter of a century. Laurel Hill East is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It's an easy walk from the bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny, where SEPTA buses are 1 and 61. Admission is free, although the tours that we give are not. Parking in the lot across the street is also free, but there are a limited number of spaces. There is an app you can download for a self-guided tour through Laurel Hill East's 78 acres. Laurel Hill West is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Bala Kinwood. There's parking at the main entrance near the funeral home and at the bell tower. Your best bet for public transportation, take the SEPTA Regional Rail to Maniunk, or one of the many buses to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue. Then cross the Schuylkill River on the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge. You will be leaving Philadelphia. You will be coming into Lower Marion. And then you come up Writers Ferry Road to the entrance near the Pet Cemetery. You can download some audios that I've done for self-guided tours at Laurel Hill West. Each of them will lead you to a 40-45 minute audio tour. Talks about people interred along the route through the cemetery. From Writers Ferry, from Pencoid to Barmouth, and then from Barmouth back. Both Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West are currently open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. We welcome dog walkers, bike riders, photographers, painters, bird watchers, nature buffs, leaf peepers, tree and plant lovers, skateboarders, and strollers, both the two-footed and four-wheeled variety. Both Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West give frequent historic tours and have many other activities. 
Find out more, laurelhillphl.com slash events slash calendar. If you follow us on Instagram and Facebook, you'll get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and activities. You can also follow All Bones Considered on Instagram and Facebook. And believe it or not, we're now on TikTok. (laughs) Thank you, Gracie. I have hired somebody to do some publicity for the podcast, and she put me on TikTok. I'm not even sure I can find it. Once you've fallen in love with these hotspots, become a friend of Laurel Hill. You'll have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year, including some inside the mausoleum visits. You also get a discount on all of the other tours, and you get a discount at the gift shop. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. Our theme song, Names at Peace, was written and performed by local artist James Harrow. You could look for him at The Fringe. He's doing a Fringe performance sometime in September. All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, and Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, are mostly researched, written, narrated, and produced by me, Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University, whom you can reach through my email, joe at joelex.net. Remember to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. Stick around to hear the references that I use for this podcast. Until the next time we meet, stay safe, stay well. Okay, bibliography, Septimus Winter. Numerous newspaper articles, plus I did read a little bit of his Cogitations of a Crank, which was published posthumously, a collection of poems that he wrote and was published by William C. Cleghorn. I believe Cleghorn is was his son-in-law or his grandson. I forget which. But most of the information from Sepp Winner, I actually had to go down to Delaware to read this. I couldn't find it in any local library, but the University of Delaware had a copy. It's called Septimus Winner, Two Lives in Music by Michael Remsen. It's from the Scarecrow Press Incorporated, Lanham, Maryland, and Oxford, 2002. For William Kirkpatrick, again, it was mostly newspaper articles, although there is this intriguing article from 1945 called Not So Far Away in a Manger, 41 Settings of an American Carol. It's by Richard S. Hill. It's in Notes, 1945, December, second series, volume three, number one. It's published by the Music Library Association. Brenda Payton, Everything came either from the web or from newspaper articles. There were no book chapters about her that I could find. Leonard Hubbard, I didn't really say that much about him. I did try to read Questlove's autobiography, More Meta Blues, but he barely mentions Hub. So, as I said before, I'm going to save Leonard Hubbard. I'm going to save Hub for a later time. Phoebe Blessington, information came from her website and from newspaper articles. Also, I sent a copy of the script to her sister, and um, I'm waiting to see if she will make suggestions. Richie Barrett, 
Pretty much everything came out of newspapers. The Wikipedia page on him was helpful also. I did not talk about Sophie Drinker and McEdward Leach. They were in the initial plans. It didn't work out. We'll talk about them later. Besides, they are both more musical scholars than performers. Okay, I hope to see you around the cemetery. Stay safe, stay well.